right? I went to UCLA for college, which has, you know, quite a number of Korean Americans where both parents were Korean. And in fact, my roommates, you know, all three, uh, there were four of us living in this apartment. All three of them were Korean American, both parents from Korea. And I remember, I think it was my sophomore year in college, one of the roommates, you know, we were talking about Korean American identity. And up until that point, you know, I always identified as Korean. And she said, but you're not really Korean American. Hmm. And I mean, it was one of the most like, I felt like it was one of the most insulting things someone could ever say to me. This month, the news broke that Facebook would essentially stop fact-checking political advertisements, allowing ads that include basically false information to run on the platform with no repercussions. During a congressional hearing shortly following this revelation, Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook's CEO, was questioned by the House Financial Services Committee, where he displayed his, by the way, woeful lack of preparation and apparent lack of understanding of his own platform's censorship policies. In the midst of a time such as this, where the political conversation so often includes misinformation and lack of evidence based on arguments, where the public is almost unable to fact-check the sources they read due to complicated algorithms. There are some individuals who are really trying and hopefully succeeding in giving people the tools they need to do the job that Facebook won't do. One of these people is Kim Dion, an assistant professor in the political science department at the University of California, Riverside, who is also an editor of the Washington Post's Monkey Cage, a blog devoted to making political science findings more accessible to the public and allowing us to have thorough conversations with integrity to the facts. Kim teaches courses on African politics and ethic politics, and recently she wrote a book called Doomed Interventions on the Failure of Global Responses to AIDS in Africa. You're listening to Immigrantly. I'm your host, Sadia Khan. Kim, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. So I want to start off by talking a little bit about your piece that you wrote in August that kicked off the Monkey Cage series on gender gap and underrepresentation in political science as a discipline. This this was very interesting. It in fact like when I was reading it I felt it was extremely well-coordinated effort to shine light on issues that directly or indirectly impact politics of our nation right now. In relation to what you wrote, I want to first start by asking you what got you interested in academia, and then we will move on to specifics of the article itself. Well, thank you for reading that piece. It, it did take a, quite a bit of work to put the series together, so I'm glad to know that it had it had an audience even beyond political scientists. <laughs> so to answer your question, you know, I wasn't so sure that I would have a career in academia. So I was a first-generation college student, meaning my parents didn't go to college. And so when I got to college, I felt like that was the goal. And I wasn't quite sure what I would do with my life afterward. And because I didn't really have any, you know, immediate role models in my Mm. family, 
it was it was it was actually quite hard to think about what to do afterwards. And it was a professor of mine, himself an immigrant to the United States, <laughs> and himself, you know, a first generation college student who, you know, he was he was a great role model for me. And he encouraged me and told me, you know, that I had some potential for this, that he saw something in me that 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 made me suited for this kind of work. And I I honestly could not imagine being where I am today were it not for his encouragement and for his guidance in in the process. Because it is, it is, you know, it is a bit of a puzzle trying to figure out how to do this kind of work and all that it entails. And so I'm really grateful to to him seeing that in me and then um, really nurturing that. And a lot of hurdles that you brought up in that piece could you relate to those were there instances where you faced those hurdles for sure i mean the very first piece that we open up with in the series after my introduction was about student evaluations of teaching and how they're biased hmm. and having taught both in public institutions and also private institutions single sex schools and co-ed schools i can say that you know it's pretty obvious to me that women face significant bias but in particular i noticed women of color face uh, very interesting challenges in trying to get students to evaluate them as they might evaluate, for example, uh, a white male professor. And for example, at my last institution, I struggled with student evaluations of my teaching because I was a challenging instructor. Students wondered, you know, who was I to challenge them to to bring their best to the class and I, when i spoke with colleagues afterwards you know many of my white male colleagues you know couldn't understand and maybe they maybe i needed to reduce the reading load but women of color that i spoke with said oh yeah you know so and so didn't get reappointed or so and so failed to achieve tenure and all of this because their performance on student evaluations of teaching right which so here's this thing that we're asking 18 and 20 year old people to evaluate you know faculty who have advanced degrees on whether they're doing a good job and and it's you know it's it's quite dangerous if given what we know now about the rigorous science on how these evaluations are biased to think that you know women and particularly women of color are going to suffer at the hands of you know uh, a bunch of 20-year-olds who aren't happy with their midterm grade you know um it, it, we should all be concerned about what that means for the academy going forward if we have these mechanisms that could actually take positions away from people who haven't typically been represented in the academy and kim why do you think this is the reason because when when i'm as i am listening to you the first thing that pops up in my mind is i did an episode i think it was season 2 where i was talking to a guest and we talked about how there is perceived hierarchy of intellect and uh, people perceive certain cultures to be more intellectual than others could that be one of the reasons or do you think there are other reasons that are at play Certainly I think that just generally you know the the kind of system that we all live in has has its own versions of oppression for different groups right and I think that even if you are a member of those groups right you still exist in this broader system right uh, this broader hierarch- hierarchical system and so you can sometimes adopt 
some of the same perspectives, right? Even if you yourself and your group might um, be challenged by those stereotypes, for sure. I think that that's, that's definitely part of it. And you can see it just in the language that people use. Some of the most convincing work I've seen is where they've done these experiments with online learning. So you never meet your instructor. But when they say that your instructor was a male, you use different language to talk about him than when they say that your instructor was a female, right? So you're in the same class, but if you're just told this one thing about their gender, it makes a big difference. But there's one other thing I want to talk about with student evaluations of teaching. They also greatly penalize anyone with an accent. You know, I I have great privilege of, you know, speaking English without, quote, an accent, right, whatever that, I mean, that has its own hierarchies, right? But because of that, right, the students, right, American students who are evaluating me are not talking about how difficult it is to understand me, right? When at the same time, the university is trying to herald that like, oh, you know, we're teaching students to engage with you know, cultures all around the globe. And, and, and quite frankly, they're not if they're allowing students to talk about my colleagues, who, you know, English may not be their first language, they may speak English with an accent that's unfamiliar to my students, right? If students are able to say that those professors are somehow deficient, right, then then students are, in fact, not learning how to engage uh, with cultures around the globe, right? They're, what they're learning is to perpetuate the hierarchies that already exist. This is such an interesting point because I brought this up in one of my episodes as well because I have an accent and I talk about this with like my friends and within our community and even my kids who were born and raised here, they will say things like, oh, mom, you have an accent. And I never felt that growing up. I don't feel it still, but that's something that has been brought up so many times. And this is is so interesting. Another thing that you brought up in the same piece was the idea of leaking pipeline, where mm-hmm. women drop out of professions, you know, after earning a degree in order to pursue alternative careers. Is it linked to how women are treated? Or do you think there are other reasons why women will pursue certain degrees and then just drop out to pursue some some other careers? I think that there are many reasons why there's a leaky pipeline. I definitely think that the the extra challenges that women and people of color face, I think that, that that's certainly one factor. But I think there are also just broader structural factors, right? Like women, for example, tend to take on more caretaking roles within families, whether that's for children or for parents or for other ailing family members, right? And and because of that, they may need to live close to their home. And that's not easy to do if you choose a career in uh, the academy because you have to be willing and able to take a job nearly anywhere um, and very likely far away from wherever home is for you. But I also think that, you know, there are other structural demands as well. For example, if you're if you're a, if you're a heterosexual woman and your partner is therefore male, um, it may be harder for you to make a case to further your own career, especially if it comes at the expense of your partner's career. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I think that Certainly, there are very specific challenges of discrimination that that women and people of color face. But I also think that there's this broader system that puts additional burdens on women and people of color, right, that that make it much harder for them to achieve in the academy. And I think that, you know, in addition to the fact that, you know, people expect 
uh, less or different from women and people of color, there are also additional burdens, right? Yeah, so yeah. Um, there's been quite a lot written about, for example, the invisible labor that women and scholars of color do in the academy, whether that's role modeling for marginalized groups or, right, for example, like I write so many letters of recommendation every year. And part of that is because as a woman, as a person of color, right, people will come to me and be more likely to see me as approachable and be more likely to ask me for, you know, for the things that they need. For example, I I don't, you know, I, I kind of joked with a colleague, a white male colleague about, you know, the kinds of things I'm asked to do that he's never asked to do. For example, I had two students this past year who were arrested and both of them, you know, separately came to me to ask for a letter of character, right, that I would write for, you know, a judge in who would be determining their sentencing. And, you know, when I when I when I mentioned this to my colleague and I was like, I'm sure you get these all the time. And that was a joke because I'm quite certain he never gets such requests. Right. And and he looked at me, you know, very sternly and said, well, well I've, ne- I've never been asked to do that. And I said, well, I can't imagine why they would ask me and not you. You know, what is <laughs> about me that makes me look like I'm the kind of person who could write a better letter of character than you. And and the answer is, quite frankly, I'm not a better person to write a letter of character. I'm just the kind of faculty member, you know, that students who find themselves in a difficult situation feel like they can reach out to me, whereas they may not feel the same way about some of my colleagues. But why do you think they would think that they could reach out to you versus your male colleagues or your white colleagues? I, I mean, I think part of it is just my own personal profile, which I do share in my classes, right? Mm-hmm. That I am, you know, a first-gen college student, the daughter of an immigrant, someone who's related to someone who's in prison. You know, I think that, you know, it, it's so rare to see that in, you know, in the front of a lecture hall and, and to hear that, you know, voiced by someone in front of a lecture hall. And so when students see me, they see me as quite different. And I, I recognize that that may lead to other, right, stereotypes and interpretations among the students that are in front of me, but I've gotten to a point now where I have to live the truth of who I really am. And I want the students in the room who may have a background similar to mine to see, right, that that they too, right, it's not, it's it should not be surprising that someone with my background can make it to being in the front of a lecture hall, right? That should be completely normal. I know it's not normal, but I want to try to normalize that experience as much as possible. So because I, I worry that if we don't diversify and become more inclusive in the academy, that we are going to miss out on really amazing and necessary advances in science and in the humanities because we're we're not pulling from all the talent that's available. We're 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 limiting it to a very narrow uh, elite group. First, I w- I would like to point out that it could also be because I think as um, you know, a kid of immigrants, you probably can emphasize more. Uh, as an immigrant, I know that when I was growing up in Pakistan, for me, I, I was part of a dominant group. So there were certain, there are certain privileges that come with it. And when I came to the U.S., just the sheer treatment of how, how you're treated differently versus how you're treated in where you were born, I think... Um, or if you are part of the dominant group, it changes your perspective on life and it makes you more tolerant of other cultures and it makes you more sensitive 
to other people's needs. So I think that may be one component of what you're describing. I think so. I also think just my own privilege of having been able to travel in other parts of the world, right? So I've done a lot of my research has been done on the African continents, in particular in Malawi, uh, a small landlocked country in Southern Africa. And Malawi is known as the warm heart of Africa, right? And and that is, I mean, it's it's true. It's a very warm and welcoming place. And I myself have been an immigrant in Malawi, right? I mean, Certainly, I, I recognize right, the various forms of like global racist hierarchies that that allow me uh, an amount of privilege in Malawi to be able to do my work. But you know, frankly, I would not have been able to do the work that I needed to do for my career were it not the warm and welcoming nature of many Malawians, right? Of people who could see that I wasn't quite navigating very well and could kindly point out to me, you know, a different way to do something. And so for, you know, all the hospitality that I've received when I've traveled elsewhere in the world, I like to think that I want to create a space in in the country that I live where we do the same for people, right? And and that by doing so, you know, it's not just about kindness, but also, you know, just like just a shared humanity, right? Like understanding we we all have our own challenges. And if someone can make something a little bit easier for you, then, you know, why, why not? Kim, I want to move to something that you created with some other female professors. Um, It's an initiative called Women Also Know Stuff. The the title is very interesting, and the title got me thinking, actually. Um, I wanted to ask you a question which we normally don't think about. Is America a patriarchal society? And because I've seen a lot of references being made to other societies that are patriarchal, but somehow we have diminished um, this question or relevance of this question from our public discourse somehow. So what do you think? Is America still a patriarchal society? For sure. For sure. I mean, uh, when I married my husband, I think his family was quite surprised that I did not take his name. And and yet both of my children have his name. Right. And and why is that? Because I live in a patriarchal society. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, some of these challenges that we've already been talking about, right, that women face. Right. Why would they face them if if we were living in a society that was not patriarchal? Right. That would be a puzzle. But we we aren't. We are living in a society that is deeply patriarchal as much as there, as there have been advancements for women. And, and I don't want to discredit those. Right. That doesn't mean that we're in a space where there's equality. Right. And until we have real gender equality, then, yes, we are living in a patriarchal society. And what's been the response like to this initiative? Well, I think that a lot of people have had a positive. I think that a lot of people have been positive about women also know stuff. I think that because what we're doing, it may challenge existing norms in the discipline of political science. But I think at the same time, people recognize that, you know, those those norms need to be challenged. Right. You know, we and, and and what we're doing, it's not like we're taking power away from someone else. We're just creating our own version of power. Right. So so it's not like there's some sort of zero sum game, whereas as we become influential and, and 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 then use that influence to promote the work of women for our discipline. I don't think again, like I, I don't think it's 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 it means necessarily that someone else has to lose power. But it's just trying to be more equitable about understanding 
you know, you know, what expertise is, who can, who can wield expertise, and then being very explicit about demonstrating that women indeed know stuff and you should ask them about it. And, and, and not just in the media, but also in, in our own uh, universities, right? We should be inviting women to come and give keynotes keynote lectures. We should be inviting women to share what they're learning in their research. And and this is not specific to women, right? There's also a corollary group called POC Also Know Stuff, right? People of Color Also Know Stuff. And they're doing amazing work, right? Trying to highlight the research and contributions that, that scholars of color are making to political science. And I think, again, this is really important if, if our true mission is to advance science, right? The way to do that is to really make sure that we're advancing the work of all political scientists, right? That that everyone's got a seat at the table. And if you're, if you continue to interview the same people, if you continue to have keynote lectures given by the same people, and by people I mean white men, then what exactly are we learning about politics in the world? I mean, look at the world today, right? Look at what's happening in Chile, right, and in South America more broadly, right, people are taking to the streets because they're quite angry about the ruling class. And the ruling class happens to be this one very typical type of person. And if you don't can reach around and, and out to various groups and, and bring people in, right, and have them all have a seat at the table, you're going to face some serious consequences. Do you think this series would have been helpful if it were available when you first considered, you know, joining the field of political science? And in what ways would it have helped you? I think that there has been some uh, concern, actually, about the series, that it might have deflated early career women in particular, right? Mm -hmm. That they would see this and they would be depressed about their prospects for their careers. And I I want to, you know, I want to be self-critical about the series and and what potential harm it may have even done. At the same time, to to your question, I mean, I definitely think that I was in a bit of a bubble when I was in undergraduate and graduate school. I went to graduate school in a department where there were many women and, and women in, you know, who had reached full professor. So I didn't see the gender discrimination in the discipline more broadly, because I was shielded from that. And I think, you know, I was asked, for example, on on job interviews, illegal questions about my marital status and about my childbearing uh, <laughs> desires, right? And had I known in advance that, you know, as, as advanced as we are, you know, there are still some Neanderthals out there who are going to ask you questions that they shouldn't be asking you. If someone would have told me that in advance, I might have been better prepared to deal with, you know, the various forms of discrimination. But um, and so for me, I, I feel like knowing information in advance is better. So I feel like it is useful to people. But again, I do want to be mindful about how it can also demobilize this important group of people that I think should be in the conversation and at the table. So are there any measures that you are planning to take that would mitigate the negative impact this may have? Are you thinking of changing it? Well, I think that what we tried to do in the series was focus on solutions. Mm -hmm. So to not just bring up the problems, but to focus on the solutions. But I think Honestly, even the solutions that that we talked about, for example, various women collective efforts, right? I think that 
you know, the problem is a broader structural problem, right? To go back to your question, you know, do, do, is America a patriarchal society? Of course it is. And so until we can dismantle the patriarchy, I think that we're all existing in an ecosystem that just generally discriminates against women. And so how we go about dismantling that system, right, and, and calling for structural reforms, right, any solutions that we offer are, are really going to be the labors of women, and we're already laboring enough, right? So, so until we can get there and, and until we can come up with structural ways to change things, I think that that's going to be a challenge. It doesn't mean I'm not interested in thinking through what I think is a very uh, sticky problem, right? Structural reform, but, um, but I, I recognize that that's hard work and that's going to take time. Kim, do you think women are partly to blame for it as well? And the reason why I say this, as a woman and as a woman of color, I have noticed I tend to self-doubt a lot. So if I'm doing something, I will always doubt myself and be like, oh, I don't know if this is right. Or if if I am complimented on something, I'll be like, oh, I don't know if I deserve it, right? And I've done it so many times and now I check myself every time this happens or I try not to say sorry as many times. So when we talk about patriarchal society and these broader structures of patriarchy, I think women have to assume responsibility in in self-correcting when it comes to, you know, self-doubt or not being able to say how well they're doing or just taking credit for what they're doing right. Because when I like when I look at my husband, he hardly says sorry or he hardly or maybe if he doubts himself, it's not it doesn't show. What do you think? I think that's one way to interpret it. I think if we wanted especially to continue the patriarchal society that we live in, then we certainly should lean in and we should not say sorry and we should take credit, right? I think we should do all of these things that Mm. that men typically do. Mm. Um, But I also think that another way to interpret it is that, you know, maybe a little bit of self-doubt is good. It's healthy. Maybe, you know, um, maybe we all could, I I could go for some people in positions of power having a little bit more self-doubt because maybe they would, you know, take take a moment before they made a bad decision, right? And they're making a lot of bad decisions. Yeah, maybe then we should retrain men to have more self-doubt, right? <laughs> for sure, for sure. And I think that, you know, there's something there's something to be said about, you know, the way women do things isn't necessarily wrong. It's just that it doesn't operate well in a patriarchal system. But the other part of it too is some of some of that, some of the way we perform right? You know, whether we say sorry a lot or whether we kind of downplay any credit someone gives us for something we've done, part of that is is necessary in the patriarchal society. So if women don't do that, then they're seen as haughty or bossy. Mm. or And so, so I don't see it so much as a problem as I see it as a response to a larger problem, right? So a lot of times, you know, for example, when I turned in my my packet for review, when I was up for review at a previous institution, meaning like whether or not I should be reappointed and continue to keep my job, hmm. I didn't put everything in, right? I put some of what, the work that I had done, but I didn't put it all in. And the reason why is because if I wrote everything down that I had done, these people might think, 
you know, who does this woman think she is, right? Yeah. She's making us look bad. You know, she's doing too much, mm. right? Whatever. It's like, I have to fit into the narrow box of, well, a woman can only produce so much, right? And if I go beyond that box, if I stretch people's imagination of what women can be, then, you know, it almost feels threatening to them. And so, yes, you know, it seems, it seems counterintuitive, right? If, if I were to talk to someone who was in a dominant group, they would say, of course, I put everything in. Like, I'm such a badass. Look at me. Right? <laughs> and I just I know the way people perceive me. And I know how feeling threatened makes certain people in positions of power react. And in my own need for self-preservation, right? I've got a mortgage to pay. I need my health care more than most people do. I'm not going to threaten you know, my own livelihood because of someone else's fragility. Hmm. But then how do we change these stereotypes and these structural discrepancies if if we just try to perpetuate the status quo in a way? How, how do we do that? That's a really good question. And I think if we had the answer to that, we probably wouldn't be living in a patriarchal society. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to go back to Monkey Cage as an editor. What is it like to steer conversations about current events, especially as these events are happening right now? That's a really good question. And and I bring a lot of my own personal vision and mission to the work. Mm-hmm. And what that means is when, for example, events are unfolding in Chile where protesters are taking to the streets, you know, in the hundreds of thousands and even lighting buildings ablaze, you know, who do we ask to talk about and put into context what's happening, right? I mean, there are plenty of scholars on Chile and Chilean politics and protest politics, but who are we asking? And for me, you know, it's really important that we not just ask the same people, right? So um, as an editor, in addition to editing pieces that get pitched to us, we also solicit pieces. And frankly, if we waited for women to pitch us ideas, we would get very few women publishing in the monkey cage. Mm. And so it's for this reason that I'm so grateful for the work that my colleagues at Women Also Know Stuff have done, right, and I've been a part of as well, in creating this database of all political scientists who identify as women to list themselves as experts on various topics and issues uh, that that may unfold, right, in current events. And so I rely on that a great deal. I also rely on Twitter and the great group of people that I find on Twitter, particularly women and, and, and scholars of color, who are working on research that actually matters for the politics that's happening today, right? Mm -hmm. And it's through that that I can identify scholars who could write for us, right? And and could shed some light on what's happening in the world, but from from an interesting and fresh perspective, right? Not what you might typically see on the pages of the New York Times. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's 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 a lot of uh, work. But it's work that I find really rewarding. And especially when I can work with a scholar who's early in their career, particularly women who may not see themselves as experts, right? But who I can say, no, you're definitely an expert. And these are the reasons why. And I'm not going to take that as an answer for no. You're allowed to say you don't have time. You're allowed to say all (laughs) these other reasons for why you're going to say no. But you cannot say it's because you're not an expert. The only reason why I've contacted you is because I already know that you're an expert. So um, so I like to push back, push back when women say no initially, 
you know, and say you can have good reasons, but but saying you're not an expert, that's a bad reason. Kim, how do you maintain balance between your own personal views on, say, current events and, and the blog's goals? And has there been a time when you've been like you've published pieces whose opinions you did not agree with at all? Yes, there have definitely been times where I personally disagree with something, but it's it's never the case that I've published something where I thought the research wasn't sound. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, the monkey cage is not an op-ed outlet, right? It's an outlet for people to write about things that are happening in the world from the perspective of what we know in political science research. Right. And right. there's plenty of political science research for which the findings or implications don't align with my personal politics. But that doesn't mean that the research itself was unsound. And so, yes, there are pieces that not only that we've published at the monkey cage, but pieces that I've personally edited where I disagree with the implications or I disagree with the author's argument, but I can't disagree with their findings because the research that they did was sound. And so they can make the claims that they're making, even if it's something that's against my own personal politics. And part of the reason why we can do that is because the monkey cage is a nonpartisan non-advocacy outfit, right? We don't advocate for a particular position. Now, it's possible that based on someone's research, that one particular policy choice seems the most beneficial given what we know from the data. And, And so you might see really meaningful policy implications. But again, we're still not going to say that this is what government X should do, right? We're, we're just going to say this is what the research says is the most effective solution, you know, and we leave it to the readers to decide for themselves. So I want to move on to your book, Doomed Interventions, since we are already talking about research. Can you tell me a little bit about the book? Well, so the book's main argument is trying to understand why interventions against AIDS in Africa have largely failed. Hmm. That's not to say that, you know, they there haven't been many major successes, but the, the, the argument is that the main reason for these failures is because of a misalignment in the global to local supply chain of interventions. And by that, I mean, the West has largely prioritized HIV AIDS programming. And you see that in the amount of official development assistance that they give to HIV AIDS versus say any other health issue or any other development issue with the priorities of ordinary citizens who are themselves navigating the AIDS pandemic. And we get that from looking at survey data, both original data that I had collected with a team in Malawi and cross-nationally available public opinion survey data from Afrobarometer, a pan-African research network that does surveys in 36 African countries. Now, how did I come to be interested in studying AIDS? Well, as a graduate student, I wasn't quite sure what I would study, and I was still trying to understand, you know, what political science was and and what it could do for the world. And you know, I I am a I am an optimist at heart. I am a humanitarian at heart, and I wanted to do something. I wanted to do research that was meaningful, that actually had an impact on people's lives. And when I started graduate school, it was very clear that in Africa, right, the thing that was affecting the most people's lives was AIDS, right? There were many, you know, Africa was the region of the world where the most people living with HIV lived, um, where most of the AIDS deaths were occurring. 
And I felt like as much as everyone was trying to understand and study civil wars and civil conflict, you know, AIDS deaths were much higher than deaths in, in battles related to conflict. Given that, that, that's what I wanted to study. So then I go out and I actually start collecting research and I realize, you know, I'm just a typical American, you know, <laughs> I'm a typical Westerner here thinking that AIDS is the most important thing. But when you actually talk to Malawians um, and, and to others on the continent, you know, it's not the most important thing. There are other things that are more important to them and that affect their everyday lives, right? And the main finding in the empirical chapters of my book is that, you know, the, the number one thing Malawians cared about was actually access to clean water. Mm-hmm. And if you dig down deep enough and look in the data, you know, diarrheal disease affects many more people than AIDS ever would, you know? So so for, for people to think about and to prioritize access to clean water, it's, it, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense. And so the end of the book really talks about the need for us to actually listen to the intended beneficiaries of these interventions that we have to improve the human condition. And it's only when we do that that we can have a better appreciation of, of what policies should be prioritized and how, you know, how governments and and uh, and partners should be thinking about people elsewhere in the world. I am so glad that you brought this up, especially in your book, working in the civil society realm, having you sat through different meetings at different UN entities and being somebody who's like from a different country, different culture. I experienced this firsthand and you bring it up so beautifully that there is a dissonance between the experiences of locals and analysis of these organizations financing any kind of intervention. There is this disconnect that we see time and again. But what are some of the solutions that you propose or you may see where we can see, we can eliminate this disconnect and engage community, local communities in needs assessment and solutions? I mean, I have some really radical views on this. And, <laughs> and, and one of them is, is to stop this whole thing with foreign aid right? That the way, at least the way foreign aid works now, it it makes no one accountable, right? So if donors can come in and take over all of the programming for HIV AIDS, right? What if donors were to do something completely unethical? Who holds them accountable, right? Whereas if governments had to take the responsibility of providing the needs and services that their citizens are demanding when they do it in a way that doesn't align with their citizens, well, voters can vote the bums out. You know, I mean, so so there's something about there's something about the current, you know, foreign aid industrial complex that I think is further removing mechanisms for citizens to 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 be able to design and and have have voice in the design of interventions to improve their condition. I mean, and I think that there's there's these broader structures, broader like capitalist structures at work that I think need again to be undone. Um, but I think you know if we want to imagine some temporary solutions along the path of dismantling that system, I think that 
particularly on the African continent, I think that we have a lot of great resources available to us to understanding what should be prioritized. And I mentioned earlier, the the data on which a lot of my book depends is Afrobarometer, this Pan-African Research Network that conducts surveys in multiple African countries. They do these nationally representative surveys where they ask people their opinions, right? And they're they're, they're highlighting African voices for understanding the conditions in which people are living and, and, and what people prioritize, what people think is important, what they think their government should be doing. And I think that funders, I think researchers, I think a lot of us who don't live in African countries can learn quite a bit just from looking at these data. And what I love about Afrobarometer is it's not just for a bunch of nerds who sit in ivory towers, you know, it's 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 for everyone to look at. They have an online data analysis portal that you don't have to know anything about statistics, right? You can just go into the online analysis portal and explore the data, make some graphs, look at some, you know, some different trends over time, right? Because they've been collecting data since 1999, so they've had 20 years of surveys done across the continent, you know, from North Africa down to the southern tip, right, east to west. Mm-hmm. And I and I really think that if, especially in uh, on the African continent, if people want to learn more about what people think, that those data are available and, and, and there's great tools for people to learn more. And also, I think engaging local organizations, because even within the field of human rights or activism, and especially when we look at different UN entities, they have some favorite NGOs, um, a few favorite NGOs that, you know, um, are given funding uh, or implement certain programs in different countries and all. And I think they are far removed from from what's really happening on the ground. So engaging local um, organizations, um, having more representation within um, the development sector, I think that also will help change these narratives and have a better understanding of what the real issues are. What do you think? I couldn't agree more. I think that there's a lot of great work that's already being done, right, by whether it's organizations or activists. And I don't think that these are hard people to find. And I think in particular today with all the advances in technology for communications, it's very easy to identify people. But even just the the old school method of shoe leather, you know, get out there and walk around and talk to some yeah. people. You can figure <laughs> out, you know. Who's got ideas on how to make things better and already has an existing structure in place to implement those ideas? I think, you know, and I write about in my book, there's a whole chapter devoted to village headmen. And, you know, this is a group of people that have been largely maligned as despots, you know, Mm -hmm. decentralized despots, you know, out in the rural areas you know, making the lives of their villagers miserable. It's just not true. It's not true, you know? absolutely. <laughs> because, you know, these people, the, their only power is over the village. And if they use that power in ways that are irresponsible, the village can kick them out, you know, it's you know, and find another headman to, to rule over the village. And, and they've done that. So I think that, you know, trying to understand existing structures of power and influence and activism 
um, can can really be a great pathway for understanding and learning more about the needs of citizens and the priorities that citizens have. And also engaging those uh, structures of power rather than alienating them. People are bringing their own their own biases to, you know, who should have power. It's like, who are we to judge? Right? Exactly. Exactly. I've had these conversations where it's like it's people talk about women's education and girls' education in countries like Pakistan and Afghanistan and other places. And the first thing they'll say is, oh, we don't want to talk to men there. And I'm like, you can't do that. You can't. You can. It's it's like if you want to, bring, you have to bring them on board. You have to engage them in order to effect change. And I think that's true everywhere. I think that's even true here, right? Again, going back to the question is, is America a patriarchal society? Yes, it is. And the only people who are going to undo that, right? It's not just going to be women. It's got to be women and men. Absolutely. So I am going to shift the conversation a bit to your personal life. So you are Korean-American who was born and raised in the States. What is your relationship with your Korean identity and how has that relationship evolved since you were a kid? That's a great question. It's it, And it has evolved a great deal. So when I was a child, so my mother is Korean and my father was American and white his family having come from French-speaking Canada. So my mother, she immigrated to the U.S. when she was almost eight months pregnant with me. So my brother was, in fact, he was born in South Korea. Oh. And then and then she, she had him, you know, this infant on her lap while she was pregnant with me flying uh, in, in from, from uh, Seoul to San Francisco, you know, however many years ago, right? However old I am. <laughs> and then uh, shortly thereafter, I was born in an Air Force Base hospital in Central California, right? So a rural part of California is where I grew up, where there weren't that many Koreans around, right? My mom was certainly one of them. And my mom, you know, she learned English very late in life. And she spoke with, a, you know, a very thick accent mm. and she was not able to achieve much in the way of education because my mom was born during a war. Right. Mm. So and she was born to a, a farming family in rural Korea. So, you know, there just wasn't there. She didn't have a lot of opportunities. So anyway, so when she when she got to the States, you know, she immigrated her entire family to live with us. So. Most of the Koreans in my hometown were my family members, um, right? My whole house was just flooded with Korean speaking, Korean food, you know, and, and we lived what I thought we lived like Koreans, right? We slept on the floor, you know, we did, we took our shoes off, we ate Korean food all the time. And then, you know, when I went to school, you know, I, I pass for many people, I pass as white. So people don't know, in fact, that I'm Korean. When I was in school, I, I think, you know, a lot of people didn't know that until they saw my mother. But even growing up in my hometown, there were lots of other kids like me where their dad was white or black or Mexican-American and their mom was Korean. So there were a lot of what I would call Hapa babies in my hometown. <laughs> and and we all knew each other because, you know, our mothers didn't have very many people to engage with. And so they all engaged with each other. So it was it was quite a close-knit community. Then I went to college, right? I went to UCLA for college, which has, you know, quite a number of Korean Americans where both 
parents were Korean. And in fact, my roommates, you know, all three, uh, there were four of us living in this apartment. All three of them were Korean American, both parents from Korea. And I remember, I think it was my sophomore year in college, one of the roommates, you know, we were talking about Korean American identity. And up until that point, you know, I always identified as Korean. And she said, but you're not really Korean American. Hmm. And I mean, it was one of the most like, I felt like it was one of the most insulting things someone could ever say to me. You know, it was like, well, I get it. Like I pass for white sometimes in certain contexts, but that doesn't mean that I don't practice, you know, my own identity. And so that was a real struggle for me. And I think a lot of, a lot of people can relate, you know, you don't have to be, you don't have to be half, right? I think that anyone in college spends a lot of time thinking about who they are and where they come from. And, and so it was a really pivotal moment for me, but I, you know, I took that as a, well, you know, there might be some truth to, you know, I don't, I don't speak much Korean. I don't read the alphabet. Like there, there are certain things that my Korean American roommates, you know, they had, they had a different access to that I didn't have. And, you know, so I I don't know, maybe it's like, as I get older, I think about the things that I miss, like my grandmother's food or, you know, listening to Korean dramas that my mom would be playing. (laughs) I mean, now, of course, we have Netflix where there's like, you know, ubiquitous Korean dramas. But I remember, you know, as a kid, my mom would go into the back of some store thumbing through a very like serious collection of VHS tapes with Korean dramas on them and trying to make sure we were watching everything in order, you know. But I, I do try to celebrate Korean holidays and introduce some of the traditions to my own family now and to to try to honor some of the things that I know about my own family. But, you know, I think every day you live in America where the norm, right, to be American, people imagine, you know, whiteness. And, um, and, and, and I don't know that I think that that for a lot of immigrants, whether they're like me and of mixed heritage or not, I think that that norm, right, that kind of that very strong norm pushes a lot of us away from our identity, even as much as it can also push us towards it. And it's interesting because America was brown long before it was white. For sure. And it just surprises me how much emphasis there is on America being white. When you were talking about your mom, I could see what I do with my kids. It's the same notion of, you know, introducing this, like our culture, food, um, I, identity, even dramas to some extent, right? Yeah. Because it's like, it's it's just that small part of who I am and what I've left behind, which matches so much that I, I'm trying to pass it on to my kids. And I can see what, what uh, the struggles that you were talking about, or at least um, some of the nuances, I see that with my kids and how they have to navigate that 
cultural identity or at least two cultural identities that they have and how they have to strike a balance between both. And they somehow have to justify it to everyone, as you said, because they sometimes they identify as Pakistani Americans. Sometimes they are just Americans. Sometimes they act more Pakistani than Americans, which is crazy, right? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is, you know, identity is so fluid, right? It is so dependent on context. And I think that, you know, we're as as humans, we just respond to those contextual keys and 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 act accordingly. One thing I also wanted to say though is that I think that, you know, we just do the best we can, right? And what I hope is that we we try to honor where we come from. And it's easier for me to do that because I had a mother who cared about this. I had extended family living nearby, but also that, you know, beyond the extended family, my mother, she knew it was important to her. Some of these things were really important to her and she knew to make friends, right? People who weren't necessarily family, but you know, people you would call auntie. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, and so I, I really think, you know, we've got, we've got to give props to the aunties, right? Like they are, you know, um, they are sanctioning us to make sure that we are staying within certain cultural boundaries that I think have are, are beneficial to us in the long run, not just as individuals, but as as groups. And my my kids, both my daughters, they make a lot of references to their desi aunties. It's always like, oh, so desi aunties must have said this to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's a there's a nice joke that I have with a, a colleague, a historian at Boston College, where we talk about ajamas. So like ajama is like a. a uh, an honorific term for an older woman. And we both talk about how we're both ajamas now. Like, we, you know, we can, we can, we can also sanction the behavior of others, you know, we can also... <laughs> So Kim, I want to ask you something else before we wrap up. So you've taught and lived all across the U.S., right? So you did your Ph.D. at UCLA, taught at Smith College. You were in Virginia for a little bit, and now you're back in California, Right. Right. So I, I lived in Texas for three years. Oh, as well. yeah. So have you noticed any trends in the political conversation based on where you have taught or where you've lived? Like when we talk about political atmosphere at each of these schools, does it change or is it something that's been homogenous everywhere? I'd say that in in public universities, mm-hmm. there's more diversity and of thought. So like you'll, you'll have more conservative students in public universities than, than I had experienced in private universities. Mm. And I, I think that, you know, I want to be at a place where there's real diversity and inclusion. And that includes being able to teach students who have, you know, a conservative background, because I want to hear what they think about the world. And I want them to hear what I know about the world. So um, in terms of like politics, right? Like I never saw a turning point on campus at Smith College, but I have seen them on campus here at UC Riverside. And, you know, I, you know, I'm not sure that's necessarily the kind of thing I want to see on campus, but, (laughs) but I do think that the selective liberal arts colleges tend to be a liberal bubble and really divorced from what's happening in the rest of the country. And I think part of that is because 
you know, who applies to selective liberal arts colleges? Who even knows that they exist, right? It's going to be a certain ruling class of people. And, you know, it's one of the many reasons why I'm very, very happy to be back in the University of California and here in particular at UC Riverside, where so many of our students are first generation college students. And it's because I really think that, you know, higher education is not just for the elite. It's for anyone. It's for everyone. And I'm I'm really grateful to be part of a system that believes that, too. So before we wrap up, I have one last question, and I always ask my guests this. If you were to describe America in a word or a sentence, um, given what's happening today, how would you describe it? That's a really good question. It's And it's so hard to answer in 2019. I feel like this year has really changed. Well, 20, 20, 2018 and 2019 have really changed what I think about America. But I guess, you know, being the true daughter of an immigrant, <laughs> I would just I would just say hopeful. I mean, it's 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 only because people have hope for something better that they're part of this broader project that is America, right? Like yeah. now some people their their hopes are not aligned with mine. Uh, <laughs> and, and so they're, you know, so but but because, right, there is this narrative of America as a place where people can really have a, a say, you know, I think that that all of us are hopeful that we can shape America into the kind of country we want it to be. And I'm I'm just hopeful that that my side's going to win in that fight. We all hope that. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kim. This was wonderful. Thank you for such a robust conversation. But before we end, where can uh, my listeners find your book, Doomed Interventions? Anywhere books is, are sold and including on the Cambridge University Press website. So you don't have to spend your dollars at Amazon.com. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Come back next week when we have another inspiring story. Um, you can check our website at www.immigrantlypod.com. And if you like what you hear, you can review and rate our podcast on Apple Podcasts. And while you're there, give us a five if you can. Thank you so much. Talk to you next week. Bye.